Mr. Derek Veenhoff. He's better known as Deke. Drinking liquor with DJ Deke, we out laughing. Yo, Deke. Hello, everybody. We're here again with uh, Dr. Kevin Folt. Uh, welcome. Your third time on the show, sir. How's it going? A third time's a charm, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we're here. We're going to chat today about COVID-19 uh, vaccines. I want to talk about public health and, and measures. Uh, and then I want to talk about disinfo and misinfo and the fears and that type of thing that you see online. And um Maybe if you want to remind people of your credentials and any caveats uh, you want to uh, put forth so that, you know, you may not be an expertise in, say, virology, but your expertise might be linked to, you know. Okay, so, uh, yeah, my, my formal education is in molecular biology. I, I did everything from yeast to cancer biology to whatever. So my PhD is in molecular biology. I've spent most of my career applying that to plants and plants as they relate to food and, and genetics um, of food production, especially for the food insecure. So that's, that's where my heart is at. Um, the COVID thing uh, really opened up a wonderful opportunity. I spend a lot of my time talking about climate and talking about genetic engineering and vaccines. So the COVID crisis really brought up an opportunity for me to step into that disinformation stream and uh, try to correct what's out there. And I've spent a lot of time, um, while I'm not a virologist, um, I certainly am a molecular biologist and I understand how viruses and immunology work at a pretty, pretty sophisticated level. Yeah, at least a little better than me, probably. <laughs> um, so let's, I, I sort of have this breaking down into a couple of sections. So I want to just remind people where we're at now currently with some of the numbers um, and a little bit of an overview. So this is mid-January 2021. Uh, we're looking, I'm just going to speak to Canadian numbers, American numbers. So uh, global cases, we have 93 million. Global deaths around 2 million. That's about 2.15%. Uh, United States has about 400,000 deaths uh, with 24 million cases, around 2%. Um, then we have in Canada about 700,000 cases we just hit today. Uh, 18,000 deaths, 2.5%. Uh, Ontario, where, where I'm at, it's uh, 240,000 cases, about 5,000 deaths, similar percentage, so 2.24. Um, so maybe we could start off by talking about one thing that confuses a lot of people is this, the, the deadliness of the virus and the, the ability for it to spread, which is this Goldilocks zone uh, that sort of is the reason why uh, the world is reacting to it in such a way. Could you expand on that a bit? Well, coronaviruses are highly communicable. Uh, they're respiratory viruses, so they travel in our vapors. So as we breathe, as we laugh, as we talk, um, the virus is present, and it's present in clouds that move from beyond us. And so this is the major uh, mechanism of transmission. Our lungs are loaded with the receptor that the virus clings to and the virus invades those cells and destroys those cells. And so that's why people suffer from, a, from respiratory syndrome as they uh, move into complicated symptom spectra from coronavirus. But it's also why our breathing is the mechanism by which it's transmitted. So same as influenza, other types of respiratory diseases, and it is um, highly communicable. 
This is a disease. This is a virus that spreads from person to person. And if we don't have person to person transmission, it's done. So this is uh, this is where we're at. Yeah. And some people get confused. They say, you know, we why haven't we done these same measures for other viruses? You know, some have been more deadly in the past and some have been more communicable. But this one just happens to be just communicable enough and just not not deadly enough such that people carry it around longer. And especially the asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic uh, carrying also leads to unknowingly transmitting it. Right. Well, the big problem we have is that there's a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking going on. When this thing first emerged, we did not know how transmissible, how deadly it was. All we knew is that people were dying and people were getting infected, and we didn't have testing in place to understand how bad it was. And so the first steps back in March were stop the spread. This is a virus that only travels by host-to-host transmission. If you don't give it to somebody, it's done. So the first response was shut it down. In China, um, I think right now, they just had recent cases. They don't do the vaccine trials in China because there's not enough disease there to be able to stop it. Um, New Zealand, um, South Korea, Taiwan. Vietnam. These nations had uh, rather strict shutdown opportunities early on that people adhered to. And now they're basically virus free. Right. And China just had their, their an, an, a new lockdown of about 30 million or so. So people, because its cases have uh, popped back up now, right? Well, I laugh at 30 million being, it's a relatively small lockdown for China. Oh yeah, for you know, sure. <laughs> you know, when you, when you, when you talk about their, uh, you know, their seventh biggest city is bigger than New York city and um, China, when they do these things, they do them big and they have a type of government and a type of um, a homogenous population where when they say we're locking it down, people lock it down. And if you don't lock it down, they lock you down. Um, it's maybe not the type of draconian measures we'd like to take here in the States or Canada, but it is um, the way that they've chosen to solve their problem and it works. Right. And of course, uh, at this point, it's been uh, almost a year. Uh, we still have people saying it's the flu or it's the cold. It's not that bad. Uh, a lot of those people have jumped ship earlier on when you realize that the sheer numbers are impossible to compute to to try and say that it is just just the flu. Um, they're you know tenfold, twentyfold, depending on what nation you're looking at. Um, what's the quickest way to sort of debunk that um, for people? Well, seasonal flu is seasonal flu. It comes and goes every year and we anticipate it. We know it's coming and we understand what it is and we can vaccinate against it. This thing is from left field. This is a, um, a, a new novel virus, which, is, uh, which has a certain degree of uh, lethality, but lethality is not the only problem. There are people who suffer from long-term symptoms from uh, COVID infection. There's increasing data that says that there are cognitive uh, impairments that appear to be associated with infection long-term. Um, lots of other new data that are emerging that are showing the uh, long-term manifestations of not or of, the, of contracting uh, SARS-CoV-2. So, the, you know, the jury is still out in terms of how bad this is, but we clearly know it's much worse than the flu and much worse than any other seasonal infection, respiratory infection. 
Right. And we just went over the, the numbers, the overview. Um, and But you, you, you had this thing a few months back that uh, it was the 6% mean uh, that was the CDC came out with the data that, you know, uh, said 6%. Um, uh, well, what people interpreted as was 6% of the deaths uh, are actually from COVID. The rest are from comorbidities that these people had. But uh, uh, from what I read, the reality is people with comorbidities tend to die of COVID because of the comorbidities, which COVID causes most of the time. And the distortion is that people with, with COVID tend to die of comorbidities with COVID-19, which is a semantics thing that people are on one side or the other. They, they don't quite understand that with, of COVID. So uh, can you explain that a bit further? Yeah. So, so the, um, the way to solve this is to extrapolate to the absurd, right? If you are COVID positive and you walk outside and you get hit with a piano, or no, let me say it this way, set it backwards. If you have a heart condition and this is something that is uh, causing you uh, discomfort, it's causing you problems, it's causing you, you know, to be on medication and you have a heart condition that's very prominent and you walk outside and you walk down the street and you get hit by a piano that was dropped from the sky from someone trying to move it up into an apartment. You died of the, uh, the, the piano killed you, not the heart disease. And so the point is here is that the, that the comorbidity is always present. The comorbidity can leave you compromised, but it is that hammer from above that really caused the problem. In the case of COVID-19, it's much more applicable because when you have respiratory compromise and you've already been suffering from cardiac dysfunction, suddenly that that COVID-19 infection takes front seat and exacerbates the symptoms that you're having in terms of a cardiac function by now putting in a respiratory overlay. And those problems together, it, it is COVID that kills you or, you know, or SARS-CoV-2. Well, yeah. Like one of the things you could have a comorbidity that is just listed on the death certificate as respiratory failure. That's right. Well, that would be caused by COVID. That's, it, that's what it, it does. And then that's how they do death certificates. You fill out what are the things that killed this person? Well, it was, uh, you know, a congestive heart failure exacerbated by a chronic lung or an acute uh, lung infection uh, that was um, that was brought on or a respiratory distress brought on by a uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection. Yeah. Now, this sort of um, distortion that I mentioned uh, was spoken by the gentleman that they they just had on Joe Rogan's podcast. Now you've been on Rogan's podcast. That's actually how I discovered you. So it wasn't for that podcast. I wouldn't have um, found your work, but um, a lot of Rogan's fans over the last couple of years have realized that his show has shifted a little bit. Maybe it's his personal viewpoints, whatever, uh, where he's having a lot less of guys like you, more of guys like this, uh, Alex Berenson gentleman. He has 200,000 followers on Twitter. He has a book about how masks don't work and lockdowns are terrible. And, uh, basically, every little piece of, uh, p- piece of disinfo uh, he's got uh, in his book, and he I can run through a few things I'd like to get into. Um, one of them was well, the the whole general idea of that uh, COVID deaths are are way inflated, whereas what I've always read is that scientists agree that they're actually undercounted. Uh, and then his debunk to that is that well, they were they used to be undercounted. 
at, at the beginning, but now they're they're highly overcounted. And I'm not sure what his reasoning is for that, but uh, we can sort of skip over that. Uh, it's just a general point. Um, one thing he talks about is PCR, the PCR test, the thresholds being at 40 cycles. Uh, another one of these points that you hear on the internet is this Dr. Kerry Mullis, the inventor of the PCR test before he died, said uh, that it's not effective uh, at finding viruses, but that that I think that's a total misquote or not a real thing. Yeah, you're doing the face palm thing. So could you elaborate? Who is this guy who created the PCR test? What is the PCR test and what are the cycles being? Well, Kerry Mullis is a cool guy and he, you know, he won the Nobel Prize for PCR and PCR has revolutionized everything from forensic science to uh, molecular biology like I do. We used to do PCR in water baths before they had machines that did it. I go back that far, you know, 1980s, I was doing PCR. So when we start talking about PCR, which I love hearing on the news and in, you know, context like this, um, this is something I know very intimately and something my laboratory does every day. Uh, the bottom line is, is that PCR is an extremely reliable way to be able to identify uh, something like a virus at the threshold of detection. And that's the problem with things like antibody tests and all the other ways in which they screen for viruses is that you're relying on chemistry, which is nowhere near as sensitive as PCR. PCR is a way of amplifying DNA. It's how they identify a suspect from a cigarette butt or from someone licking an envelope, right? So this is a way in which you can say, here's some uh, nasal swab from this patient. Do we find virus? And so you, you can go many cycles, which means, so cycles basically says every cycle you double the amount of something that's there, if it's there, which is great because it allows you to amplify a target with very, very fine sensitivity. So something that's very abundant, you might be able to see after 25 cycles. Something that's very rare, it might take 30, 35 cycles. When you're getting out in the 40 cycles, arguably, you're starting to say that's a level at which something is um, potentially detecting something false. However, in the case of SARS-CoV-2, the question is, does this person pose a public health threat? And so you want to have the most sensitive uh, extrapolation of the data you can get. 40 cycles, if you come out clean after 40, you're clean. If you come out after 40 with a positive, okay, maybe there is some error in there. But this is a question of identifying, this is a public health question, not a basic science question, the big difference between the two. We want to protect people from people who are infected. So we'll go a little further to ask, are they infected? And right. maybe it's better to have false positives than false negatives. Right. right. I mean, and I, I can only guess that these false positives and these, these uh, maybe overcounting or whatever it is are definitely, they got to be on the margins. Like in most of these points that people try to make, it's not like 90% of the numbers are, you know, a false positive or whatever it might be. Right. Well, it could be people who just got infected yesterday who have very low viral titers. Mm -hmm. So the amount of virus that's present is very low. Or it could be people that had it and were asymptomatic and are 10 days into it and basically not shedding virus anymore. And so you're picking up a little bit of residue of things that were there that are no longer there. But the bottom line is, is that our goal is to identify the people who are 
positive who, who, and, and maybe you're going to take out a few people who are on those fringes, but you know, I'm a professor who for nine months was told, stay home, don't go out, wear a mask. And I did hundred percent compliant. I'm not a spring chicken. I'm not in uh, one of the risk groups. I've been really careful because I don't want to um, get it myself. And, and it would be a heartbreak if my wife, my neighbor, someone around me got it from me because I wasn't careful. That would just be horrible. But now they're asking me to be in a classroom with X amount of students, face-to-face classes, which I'm doing because they tell me to do it. Hmm. But I want to know if they're positive and if they're positive, I need them to stay home. And I don't want somebody who's there at, you know, day five, when they're just starting to, to ramp up the amount of viral titer. Um, I don't want them in the class. I want that 40 cycle PCR test to flag them and tell them quarantine. Right. Because that's where we need to be. I, I think that um, with this generation, we're going through this point in history, this polarization, we always talk about, you know, the siloing and all this, all this, uh, black and white stuff. It's this concept that everybody who's concerned about coronavirus is fearful. You know, they're panicking, fear porn, all those words you hear. And then the people who are on the other side are just COVID idiots, they call them, or they're deniers or whatever. Um, I think it's totally logical to be concerned about the spread of something like this, like the world is the the people who the public health officials and the scientists and people who um, deal with this type of stuff. It, it, it doesn't mean that everybody's panicking. It just means that we're trying to be safe and make sure that we can stamp this thing out and let's get rid of it. Put it in the, our rear view mirror, right? It's uh, it doesn't mean that we're all freaking out. It's just uh, being real, being um, paying attention to the facts, right? Well, what you're separating is your reptile fear brain from your uh, your cerebral cortex and your executive function uh-huh. that does rational reasoning. Yeah. Um, I don't make decisions based on fear. Right. You know, someone tells me that there's a new virus and, uh, you know, and, and here's what, here's our guidelines. I'm not, that's not fear that's making that decision. That is a rational understanding of what this is and what it can do. And, uh, and it's communicability communicability and my ability to break that chain. And so that's where I fall on this. I'm not making the decisions I make out of fear. I mean, sure, I don't want to get it, but that's not fear driving that. That is a rational understanding of the risks of communicability um, in, in my cohort. You know, guys who are, you know, I mean, I'm 54 years old, maybe in good shape, but not the best. And, you know, I mean, it, it happens. People who are really healthy, there's other genetic determinants that are involved here too. And I don't want to dance with that devil. My, my goal is uh, stay clear of this. Um, if not for me, for the people I love and the people who I interact with on the rare in instances that I do interact, my, we do farmer's markets on, sat, on Sundays, uh, Saturdays, and, you know, we mask up and keep distance. But man, I would I would be I would be heartbroken if someone got sick from me. Well, this is the thing that's that's a few months back they started saying okay in America at least okay now's the point where people are starting to know someone who's who's had it right. But first it was uh, obscure, never haven't heard it anyone in my circle. Then okay, I heard my cousin had it. Blah blah blah. Uh, it's gonna get worse. It's gonna get closer to you and your circle uh, soon, or you know, as we go on uh, in the next little bit. Well, I hope it goes away, but I'm just saying it, it's very possible. Um, but uh, the 
the point is, you know, they keep saying, you know, uh, yeah, if you're 85 and over, that's where, uh, you know, 82,000 of the deaths are in, in America. But why have we thrown our elderly out to the streets? Did like these are our grandparents? These are the the some of the most important people in our lives. Uh, just because it's not your grandparent that has died from COVID, you know, they they say, oh, well, they would have died in two months or maybe a year. But even still, like, so what? So like. But who, who who are you to say that? That could be five years, ten years. We we don't know. And to say that it's only old people dying of found was such a strange viewpoint that a lot of people took right from the beginning, and are still um, saying that you know it's only old people that are dying. Like these are our loved ones, and you do hear reports lately of people uh, at their the deathbeds of these elderly apologizing for giving them coronavirus. You know how, how bad would you feel to have to say to your grandparent, you know, I'm I'm so sorry that you got this. It, you know, knowing that it was your fault because you, you know, uh, spread it to them. I mean, if you were taking all the precautions and it's not want to blame every single person, right? Perhaps you did it accidentally or, or whatever, but to have this nonchalant view of it and then pass, it would be a terrible thing, I think, subjectively for anybody. Yeah. And I think that, that there's not too many people who wear that level of awareness and, and concern for others these days. And maybe that's a larger, broader social problem, Yeah. but you're right. You know, these are, these are our community's elders. These are war heroes. These are people who served in world war two and, and Korea and survived those atrocities. And um, in some cases, you know, Vietnam, and these are the folks now who are being taken out by our nonchalant behavioral decisions that we decide that we are not going to stay home, that we decide we're not going to wear a, a mask to protect others, that we make a decision. And, and, and that's all the, the virus is spreading because we let it spread. Yeah. And, and we could stop it. Yeah. Now. Yeah. And just to touch on this freedom point that everybody brings up, you know, it's my freedom to where am I infringing on my free speech or my mask, whatever the thing is. What I always tell people, what about the freedom of people to be healthy? What about our collective freedom as a society to remain unaffected by a virus like this, you know, and uh, there's always a counterpoint. So, you know, they, they'll say, well, viruses happen all the time. Not not like this. And again, we could go back to the Goldilocks concept of the sweet spot that COVID-19, uh, the coronavirus hits, which is, you know, just deadly, uh, just deadly enough, but not too deadly. So that people carry it around and, and uh, you know, just able enough to 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 spread uh, pretty rapidly. Um, could we jump to the origins of the virus? Um, this is a contentious point right now because you have people like Mike Pompeo, the secretary of state in the United States, who has been a Trump loyalist, uh, for a while and doesn't seem to agree with the CIA or the other epidemiologists or the virologists around the world. Um, if anybody wants to go, you can look up, there's a, I forget where it is, but if you Google timeline of, uh, the accusations of the Wuhan lab, you'll see a pretty good timeline showing which articles were posted, which officials said different things and different dates and how it flip-flopped and that kind of thing. Um, from my understanding, the science says that it is very, very unlikely that it was created in a lab either on purpose or by mistake. Um, and you maybe can explain some of the, the aspects of the virus that, that show us that. Um, but that uh, basically, if it was created in a lab, the idea is it was created by an idiot because because of some of the aspects of the virus, 
only nature could have sort of created. And, and one of them was a polybasic cleavage site, a cleavage site. And maybe you can explain some of that if you know uh, a little bit about that. No, that's a, it's, it's, it's all a, a relative, relevant point. Um, the first thing you have to know when you start talking about conspiratorial origins of a virus is that there are people like Peter Dedzik and other people who have studied the presence of coronaviruses in natural repositories for years. These are present in bat populations, in pangolins, and other mammals that are um, present throughout the world, coronaviruses. The big trick is that when they become zoonotic, when they be, make the jump from an animal to uh, the human animal, um, that's when we notice them. Okay. Otherwise, they're just swirling in those repositories. And people know they're there. They, there are scientists that go into the caves and they study what's there. They know this stuff is there. They're trying to anticipate the next pandemic. There's people who've published on this for years. Now, all of a sudden, um, it emerges and people are surprised. But the scientists who study this are not surprised. Uh, as humans encroach on wild areas, as we start concentrating animals in their natural habitats, as people begin to collect and butcher animals for food, like bats. You know, we know who patient zero was with Ebola and the bat that he consumed. I mean, this is, this is no surprise. Um, when you look at the genetics, you look at the molecular sequence of the virus, it tells the story of where it is and where it came from. And there is no good hint that says anything about this coming from a laboratory. If anything, it's a naturally occurring variant of something that we know is already there. So no surprise. Yeah. And, and I mean, the lab has denied it. China has denied it. Uh, not to say that we believe everything China says uh, on face value, but why, you know, tr think about who's saying this stuff. Mike Pompeo, Trump, right. these guys who call it the Kung flu, like they clearly have an agenda to blame it on China. Uh, and uh, yeah, again, if people want to look up more about that too, you can just search um, Reddit on Reddit. There's a great thread by a PhD in virology that lists all these, these topics and why it's probably not, uh, you know, created by, by humans. Um, well, well, the, the thing to jump in with that is, is that we're not eliminating the possibility that it was, I mean, that's a, a viable hypothesis, just, there's no evidence to support the hypothesis that this came from a laboratory in Wuhan. And the, you know, the um, other point that you just made on this, it, there's, it is extremely unlikely that this kind of thing would happen that way. And the folks who are saying that it is really unfortunate because a lot of folks trust Mike Pompeo, Donald Trump, whatever. They really trust and hang on every word they say. And to continue to spread that kind of information without good evidence of it, um, you know, they can say it's a hypothesis, fine, but there's no evidence to support it. And, and it really just makes a much more dangerous climate, both politically and epidemiologically. Right. Um, so when we talk about how one of these things comes around every 10, 20 years or so, are there viruses that occur in that manner uh, between bats and that kind of thing and get to humans, but maybe they're so deadly, they kill a few humans, but they don't spread? Like, are there ones that we just don't hear about that happen? And how often would they happen? Oh, almost certainly. And because this was a point you made earlier about how this thing had the sweet spot between um, being transmissible and not 
deadly because in order for a virus to spread, it has to be able to uh, make the host extremely ill, but not kill the host. In order for me to pass it to, to someone else, I got to get it. And then I got to go to the grocery store or the bar or the Trump rally to spread it, right? I got to go somewhere else to, to get it out of me uh, onto somebody else. If this thing kills me in the first day, then it's not a very good virus. So there's that side of the spectrum, the things that are highly transmissible yet not lethal, you know, highly lethal. And then there are literally thousands of viruses that you, will make you asymptomatic upon infection. And you're bombarded by coronaviruses on a very regular basis and novel coronaviruses. Um, they just don't cause symptoms. And uh, the coronaviruses and many others. I mean, we're, we, we live in a world where we're constantly experiencing new uh, viral threats and the immune system is able to neutralize them. They don't cause pathology and no big deal. What about the coincidence? People say it's such a coincidence that there's a level four lab right in Wuhan, just down the street or a few kilometers from the site that supposedly had the wet market. Is it is it a case that there are actually a lot of labs like this or is it just a funny coincidence or what, what's the explanation there? There is a level four lab in every major city in the United States and China. And, I was going to guess that. You know, and in and, and China, you know, they're, they're, they're doing a lot of very nice science in China right now. Uh, Wuhan also... Um, you can drive maybe an hour, hour and a half outside of Wuhan and see some of the most uh, abject poverty you've ever seen anywhere. And uh, I've been there. I've been to Wuhan. You know, the air quality is awful. It's the worst that I've seen in anywhere in China. I've uh, been to China Agricultural University. They have fantastic science going on there, um, particularly in the area of citrus and other things. And uh, had an opportunity to, to tour citrus groves. I did a lot of travel in Wuhan. Hmm. And there are a lot of extremely poor, extremely hungry people it, you know, within an hour's drive. And uh, to, to get a bat and be able to have dinner, that's good stuff. Right. So to me, that's a much, much, much more plausible mechanism of transmission. Yeah, it's like the Bermuda Triangle thing. They say that, you know, the, all these stories of these planes and boats that disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle. But when you actually look into it, the average number of accidents that happen there is the same in any chunk of sea that you look at in the world. It's just, again, one of these sort of, I don't know how to explain it. They just, you know, someone tells you, hey, this this stuff happens here. Or this is a coincidence that there's a lab right by the, and you just sort of believe it. Um, and then you find out that there's a lab in every every city. So. Yeah. Um, maybe we can jump to uh, vaccines, um, the effectiveness of vaccines, the, the current news on vaccines and some of the concerns. Um, in some of your recent episodes of the Talking Biotech podcast, which people can subscribe to, um, you have been talking about vaccines and, and COVID. And you, you mentioned that uh, it's not about having conversations to convince uh, diehard people. Uh, opponents of vaccines, but the people who may be on the fence or in the middle or just questioning or don't know a lot about it are the ones that we probably want to talk to in the interest of effectiveness and time and that sort of thing, right? Well, that's um, what the, yeah, I'm sorry, I cut you off. No, it's okay. <laughs> uh, I was just, you know, go ahead, actually. Well, the, that's what the research shows is that the majority of people who are involved in the conversation about vaccines either say, I probably will get it or probably um, will not get it. Okay, there's only so much that says I absolutely am going to do this, rolling up my sleeve, waiting for a jab, and so many small number of people who are saying there's no way I'm going to do this. 
So this huge group of people is kind of on the fence. Even my dad, you know, I asked, did you get the vaccine yet? And he's like, well, eh, let's see how it goes. Maybe someone else. And it's like face palm again. Right. And um, the, the bottom line is, is that if you end up spending your time as a communicator, trying to convince either those who have already subscribed or those who will never subscribe, you're wasting your time. The idea is there's this huge group of people who just are wondering who to trust about this. Yeah. You know, they don't know, they, they, they trust their physician, but they don't trust the drug companies and they trust, you know, what they're hearing on one side, but they don't trust the other. And so our job for you and, and everybody else who's listening is become the trusted source of information and learn as much as you can. And if you can do that, reach out to those people who are saying, I'm not sure. And they may be in, you know, Facebook, they may be on Twitter, whatever, reach out to them and answer their questions, become the trusted source of information and help them be more comfortable with receiving that shot. Because the more people that get it, the sooner this goes away. Yeah. I, I'm always amazed by the fact that people today will uh, be more comfortable getting a novel coronavirus that we don't fully know the effects of that we haven't seen for a full year over getting a vaccine that we know and the experts tell us is, is safe uh, and effective. Uh, you know, I'm not afraid to get COVID in a sense. I almost kind of one day want to be able to say, hey, I got it and I got over it, you know, something like that. But at the same time, I don't know what the effects could be on me. I probably don't want to get it, you know. And, and again, like we said earlier, we don't want to spread it, of course. Um, so we go through some numbers here. Uh, so currently in Canada and the U.S., uh, as of today, January 17th, 2021, if both roughly vaccinated about 1% of their populations, um, you know, they're being both countries are being criticized for going very slow. Um, the, the U.S. had a target to hit 20 million in December. I think it started as 40 million. They bumped it down to 20 million. Uh, and I think they vaccinated about 3 million. Um, yeah, so... Uh, Joe Biden, or the next uh, president, wants to vaccinate 100 million people in his first 100 days. Uh, some people are saying that's a little uh, ambitious. Um, what can you say about, uh, I suppose we get into the mRNA and what the va different vaccines are out there uh, specifically, but maybe what can you say about distribution, administration, shortages, and that, that sort of thing? And, what, and will there be a time soon where it's going to uh, increase in, in speed as far as... Uh, the number of vaccinations. Oh, sure. Yeah. This isn't a political statement. This is a scientific statement is that we had nine or 10 months to set up a federally guided state by state plan, but here's how we're going to do this logistically. When it gets here, here's how we're going to roll it out. We didn't do it. We just didn't do it. U.S. or Canada, as far as I can tell. Um, U.S., we completely, you know, we downplayed this from the beginning as, as a federal government, as a federal issue, when the federal government is the one that has the power and the ability to do this efficiently. And we could have, and it didn't matter who's in charge or anything like that, the federal government is the one that can mobilize this. And we didn't do it. And so now we have all of this availability of vaccines that the companies produced, where the government took its hands off and said, we're going to, you know, let this happen. Great. The government streamlined the process, gold star there. The problem is, is that there was no rollout plan. And now we have, uh, you know, stories of, of you know, 4,000 doses getting dumped in the dumpster because they expired. Mm 
Um, Can I jump jump in and ask you, is that actually anti-vaxxers that are in the system or is this just these mistakes? And how how much is that actually happening? Because you keep hearing about this, but everyone says, oh, yeah, it's anti-vaxxers. They just throw them in or they leave them in there or whatever. But how much of that is true? No, it's a logistical problem. You you have you have a sensitive drug in this case mRNA, which is an inherently unstable molecule. You know, I've worked with mRNA my entire career. That that's been my hallmark. You know, this molecule that's super unstable that a guy like me you know would want to stay away from. I end up working with for forty years, thirty years. Um, bottom line is is that this stuff has a shelf life. In order for it to be effective, it has to get into an arm within X number of hours in order for it to achieve the efficacy, which we've demonstrated in clinical trials. So this stuff needs to get into an arm. If it's not, you, you can't take a risk of administering it and um, ensuring somebody, uh, well, at least providing somebody with the patina of protection of a vaccine when it's not viable. So that that's the big problem. Are you at this point, are you feeling positive about the, the vaccinations? Are you feeling a little uh, worried at all? Do you think that it's the, in the UK, for example, I think now they're vaccinating at five times the rate of inf- new infections. Um, is that a good sign or are the North America going to catch up to that? It's an awesome sign. This is where we should be. We've been vaccinating people for a long time. You can go back to smallpox. You can go back to polio. That was old school stuff and it worked. And this is, you know, rubella, um, you know, uh, mumps, all this stuff worked. HPV has been a, a, a godsend to stopping cervical cancer. We have a vaccine against cancer. We have a vaccine that stops cancer. We have a vaccine that stops cancer. I mean, I can't say it enough. Yeah, exactly. Right. You know, um, we have vaccines that can solve these problems. Hepatitis B, you know, which, which used to claim lots of people. We have vaccines that solve problems. This is not new. It's not magic. The mRNA method of vaccines is just a much more efficient way to streamline the production by turning your body into the factory that makes it. And this isn't new either. We've been, they've been injecting mRNA into animals since 1989 and showing that it works. And there were certain problems with that in terms of using it as a vaccine that really were overcome by 2005 by a doc, uh, professor named uh, Dr. Katalin Kariko. Uh, she was a Hungarian-born scientist who figured out how to have the body not react negatively to a foreign mRNA, which is a foreign molecule. The body responds to it. She'll win a Nobel Prize this year. Mark my words. If you're a betting person, go to Vegas and sometimes put put a few thousand dollars down on Catalina Carrico okay. for the Nobel Prize in medicine. Uh, her and Weissman, her uh, colleague at Penn State or University of Pennsylvania. Um, they figured out how to get around this. And she works with um, BioNTech, who's the company who developed this with Pfizer um, now that she's out of academia. Um, Bottom line is, is that this is not new technology. It's very well established. It just was applied to this problem because we had a crisis and it works. Yes. And we'll get to this point that everybody brings up to with this. It was, they think it was too fast. And I do blame the media a little bit on this because today you have this media that, Every headline is something that's going to prov- provoke us to be fearful or excited or something crazy, right? Uh, they say, wh- they ask the question, was this rolled out too fast? It's like, who came up with this question? Why are you guys even suggesting that? Like, let's just, and it comes from the media and then it gets into people's brains and they say, oh, I think it was done too fast. Now, a friend of mine gave me a great analogies and I didn't think about this simply before he said, 
if you had a problem with your car and you had every mechanic in the world come to your doorstep to come to your garage to fix your car, how fast do you think it would go? And I was like, whoa, that really blew my mind. Like, yeah, there's a huge problem. The whole world stops what they're doing and focuses on the same problem. And it's actually, we should be astonished and amazed and excited about how great humanity, how, how great we've done, how far we've come, that we can do something like this, that we can face this type of problem and actually do something against it. We're not just animals. We're not just our former selves and the monkey, you know, ancestors and that we're, we're advanced and we can, you know, we can tackle a problem like this. Uh, how do you explain that uh, in your own mind that, uh, you know, why it was done fast, how it was done fast and that sort of thing? Well, it would not have been possible 20 years ago. Mm. And the bottom line is, is that we are in a, we are in a place where our scientific ability to create new, new solutions for problems, real problems, um, it exceeds our ability to deregulate them. So we have this archaic regulatory system of the 1970s and 80s that is saying we need to take this very slow through the process. And right now, you know, the companies that made the uh, COVID vaccine, they have uh, vaccines against Ebola, yellow fever, chikungunya, Zika virus, all these uh, mosquito transmitted things in the developing world as well as in the U.S. now. Um, uh, influenza, uh, cytomegalovirus, which everybody, many people have and no one talks about. There are mRNA strategies against these that they've been in trials since 2013. These are established clinically tried techniques that work. The only reason that you heard about SARS-CoV-2 vaccine is because we had this problem drop in our lap that shut down the world. Mm -hmm. And now it's all of a sudden, let's move this thing. If we could have the same sort of accelerated schedule for the new breakthroughs in uh, cancer vaccines, which, which, are, which exist, um, we could change you know, uh, um, sickle cell anemia treatments, all kinds of treatments that are there. They're right here. And using the old model to deregulate the modern speed of science is, is unconscionable. This is a great example where, you know, to his credit, the Trump administration pulled out all the stops and said, make this happen. And they made it happen. You know, we, we got to give them, give them that one. Um, so this is a case where the uh, FDA and other others, other um, regulatory agencies, instead of allowing this thing to happen, step one, step two, step three, they did step one, two, three altogether. They overlap some of this, some of the systems. They overlapped what has traditionally been an iterative system and they took out the expense, you know, drug companies, 97% of what they, they put in the phase one trials, the first level of animal trials for, for, is it safe? They fail. Um, they never make it, I should say 97% never make it through phase one, phase two, phase three. Is it safe and does it work? And so th th they're very hesitant to bring things forward in the clinical trials because it's extremely expensive um, and extremely time consuming. Right. So here's an opportunity where we said, we're going to use the same regulatory infrastructure, but we're going to make it happen on a compressed timeline. And that's why we got in nine months to a vaccine. It's amazing. It's, it's incredible. And we should be celebrating that and getting excited about it, not worrying about it. Right. Now, the mRNA vaccines are the first ones that are that are out. And is it true that there's going to be the more traditional style vaccines that will also come to sort of supplement as time goes on uh, until we can get fully vaccinated? Those are going to come as well. So those won't need the sort of same temperatures and the, maybe some of them are single dose as well. 
Yes, that's right. So there's a couple other types of viruses that are coming out and the uh, Project Warp Speed, as well as uh, viral um, vaccine efforts around the globe, have focused on these different modalities. And so let's talk about that one that you talked about first with the uh, uh, traditional you know, uh, attenuated virus. So it's a inactivated virus. You grow mountains of the virus and then you take it apart chemically. So you add an, an, a reagent that dissolves basically let's put it in simple terms, breaks down that virus so that it's no longer functional. It can't replicate anymore. It's no longer a functional virus, but it's all the parts of the virus. And so when you inject that into your arm, your body is now confronted with all of the signatures of that virus that say, you know, here I am, you know, mount an immune response against me. The other alternate, and so that, that's happening. Those are coming. They take longer because you have to have a BS4 facility to be able to grow or BS3 facility to be able to grow mountains and mountains of virus uh, to be able to grow it and inactivate it. So that, that takes time. It's uh, cell cultures, eggs, or whatever they use for this. Um, it takes a long time. You got to grow a lot of it and inactivate a lot of it and be sure it's inactive. <laughs> so there's a lot of... Um, pitfalls and landmines along that process. The other one that's coming is a model that was done by AstraZeneca and Oxford, where it is a virus, uh, it's adenovirus, so an actual virus that is a single dose vaccine because it delivers, the virus goes into your body and continues to infect cells and make more of the spike protein. So the protein that is the signature of the coronavirus that it, it ignites an immune response against it, both a primary and secondary immune response. We could talk about that if you like. But the basic idea is, is that the virus keeps infecting cells and you're always making more of the antigen, the molecule that your body wants to, be, wants to trick the body into thinking there's a invasion and your body mounts an infection against it. Or I mean, mounts an immune response against it. Mm -hmm. And so in this case, when the real virus comes along, your body says, we got this. We already saw this, no big deal. So that one is a single dose vaccine because the virus keeps making more. Hmm. When you're getting your mRNA vaccine, you need to have two doses because you get some basal level of response. And then the second vaccine elevates that to a whole nother level. You may get 50% resistance in that first dose. Maybe you get 95 in the second, at least right. by the numbers by Moderna and, and Pfizer. So um, the other things that pe people fear vaccines or are concerned about them because of uh, the side effects that they may have, or they say people get sick. Now back to, I hate to keep harping on Rogan, but Rogan on his show too said, you know, Bill Gates said 80% of people get sick. And they showed the clip and it's like Bill Gates didn't even say that in the clip that they showed. You know, he said something sort of different. And then they looked up the data on the podcast they were doing and the, the guy, the, the guest found uh, it's actually 10% of people get these chills and fevers. You know, what are some of the side effects of both maybe the mRNA vaccine and the traditional vaccines that you could see and, you know, how dangerous are they really? Yeah, so I don't have the paper in front of me, but the the data were published on um, December 10th of 2020 by Pfizer, and they had extremely large trials. Uh, traditional phase three trials are maybe 3,000 folks in a clinical trial. They had, um, I think, 30,000 in 
in Pfizer and 43,000 in Moderna. So these are massive trials. And so they were able to assess people from many different ethnic groups. They, were, they had women who got pregnant during the trials. They had um, uh, many different ages, you, you name it. So this was a good represent, representative group when you look in the Pfizer data. The biggest problem in terms of side effects were injection site soreness, malaise, um, maybe slight fever. These were happening in maybe three to 4% of people who were in the treatment group. The big problem when, when, when you see online is, wait a minute, six people died during that trial. Yeah, if I could just before you move on, is I'll just one quote here. Norway reports 23 post-vaccine deaths out of 25,000 shots. After examining 13, it says side effects from the mRNA vaccines may have led to deaths. Right. Yeah, it, but but in the, in the Pfizer uh, trial, there were six deaths, mm -hmm. uh, two of them in the vaccine group, four of them in a placebo group. <laughs> so if you're uh, if you're an anti-vaxxer, stay away from placebo. It's twice as deadly as the vaccine, right? Right. I mean, that's the kind of stuff we're we're up against here. If you look at a a, a trial of ten thousand people, uh, you will have uh, seventeen cardiac events during the course of a six month trial. I think those are, don't quote me on that, but that's pretty close to what those data are. Because when you're testing people, you know, somebody dies every day. Yeah. And it doesn't mean the vaccine did it. Right. But, but when you're looking at these large groups of people, you know, 74,000 people, some of those 74,000 ain't gonna make it another two weeks. Um, some of them are going to have heart disease. One of the people in the um, Pfizer trial was murdered. Yeah. So, so <laughs> well, and this is, I've, I've saw people say this recently, um, you know, on Twitter, somebody said, you know, let's get ahead of this because, because people are going to die from after taking the vaccine. So let, let's get ahead of this and understand that people die. And just because someone dies after getting a vaccine doesn't mean that it was the vaccine. Um, just speaking of the trials, you mentioned the numbers involved uh, on the same podcast that Rogan had. They were talking about, you know, he's purporting vitamin D to be one of the greatest things to prevent COVID and boost your immune system and that. And he was referencing these really small studies um, that, again, had comorbidities involved where, uh, you know, let's say a bunch of elderly people died of COVID. Well, they had they were deficient in vitamin D. Well, they all they also had these comorbidities like so just to say, oh, it's got to be the vitamin D is like very poor way of analyzing that situation. Well, especially because they looked at soluble vitamin D levels in most of these patients and showed the levels were low. But is that the case that when you are sick with a viral disease, your vitamin D levels crash, right? You know, because you're in, so they don't, you can't show cause and effect. And when you start looking at prophylaxis and, you know, the, and these studies are being done places like, especially in the developing world, places like Bangladesh and India, where you have huge populations and you're looking for cheap medications like ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, um, uh, um, vitamin D you don't see positive associations in any large reproducible studies. You see marginal effects in smaller studies. And, you know, there's, you just can't, you can't, you can't bank on that. Right. And, and, you know, if it worked, we would be seeing it more widely in use and more widely prescribed. It just, it just doesn't Exactly. Work. That's another point that I always think about is, you know, Trump comes out, says hydroxychloroquine or bleach or whatever he'll say. And then people will say, uh, yeah, why aren't they trying that? Uh, but don't you think like doctors and scientists and the experts are trying the most effective things? Like, it's like people think that they're just these 
these cyborgs with no brains that are walking around and doing their work and don't think or you know haven't gone to school for 10 15 years and and know about this stuff and know uh how to look for the best treatments and that sort of thing but speaking of like hydroxychloroquine and other remedies uh, you know are there people using that in in the hospitals and does it have some effect on some patients and maybe not on others and what's that all about well, it's been a point of contention because uh, these are being studied in other countries. They're, uh, you know, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, both extremely well tolerated. Um, you can give either to pregnant women, it's no big deal. Um, uh, um, hydroxychloroquine is an extremely useful anti-malarial. Is it for arthritis? Is that right as well? Um, it's used in some cases with lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. Um, it's used in, uh, is prescribed because it, it detunes the immune system in, in that regard. If you look at how hydroxychloroquine works as many different proposed mechanisms of action, one of which is interfering with endocytosis, which is the way that when the virus stocks the cell, the virus is brought into the cell and then released into the cell through this process called endocytosis, where the, the, the cell actually breaks off a little piece of membrane with the virus load inside. And it is conceivable that hydroxychloroquine could work to, in, to um, inhibit that process of, of endocytosis. However, um, we don't see evidence of that clinically. And when you look at the numbers, it just doesn't say it works. It didn't work for HIV. It didn't work for Ebola either. So um, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, vitamin D, all of these things are nice thoughts um, you know, around the world, they're being tested rigorously in larger trials. And you'll see the data from those soon. But there is no data at this moment that support their use to be recommended for uh, folks with, um, with a SARS-CoV-2 infection. The best case right now is the, um, uh, the monoclonal antibodies. Those are really strong and they show very good clinical effects along with um, some administration of steroids later in the course of the, of the virus. Uh, what can you, what can be said or how do you think about the uh, ICUs filling up and the, the uh, over the, you know, when we talk about deaths from COVID, there's also hospitalizations that goes with every death of COVID. There's, you know, maybe 15, 20 people that have to be on oxygen and uh, that whole, uh, you know, stopping the curve and flattening the curve and that whole thing that a lot of um, COVID deniers, so to speak, have said, you know, that was the goal initially. And now, now they just want to control us and they're not worried about, you know, the curve anymore because there is no curving. Now there's just a, a straight up tower that, you know, the graph is just going into infinity. But um, how do you think about uh, that sort of thing? I, I think you'll see it flattening. We're going to be on a post-holiday flattening now, now that people are not traveling as much and interacting, I, I think we're going to see things start to go down. And I do have some faith in the new administration that they are uh, sincerely considering taking more radical steps to curb the spread of this thing and, and, uh, and to vaccinate people. Um, I believe that that is long overdue. And, and I'm glad that that'll happen. But I, I don't think that the, the rhetoric around you know, the rhetoric around flattening the curve is very real. That's what we need to do. And the way you do it, stay away from people. Pretend yeah. you're infected if you go out. Like uh, here in Ontario, for example, we're on our boxing day. They started a new lockdown and then they sort of added an additional lockdown was just started as well. I'm on work from home now, for example, and this is supposed to be for 28 days because they say in February, our ICUs in Ontario are going to be full. 
Um, so I think that's a pretty serious point. Um, I don't know if people point of contention they say well why don't we have enough capacity you know there should be more hospital beds or icu beds but i mean uh every jurisdiction or area is set up to a certain degree not anticipating a giant pandemic like this all the time although we know that scientists warn us about them that sort of thing um is that a reasonable critique to say hey we should have more icu beds in certain places i mean it sure would be nice, but the yeah. bottom line is, is that ICU beds cost money and it's exactly. tough to maintain. Right. And, you know, when, when you are converting in Canada, ice hockey rinks into ICUs, uh, when you're, when you're converting hotels into ICUs, when in the States here, we're taking convention centers and setting up mass trauma areas to be able yeah. to, uh, you know, this is a sign that something ain't right. Yeah. And especially because, and, and I'll say it a thousand times, we control it. And if everybody said, I'm going to treat the next three weeks that I'm infected, like I'm infected and I'm highly contagious, and I'm going to go out and protect everybody else from me, which means I'm staying home. If I have to go out and get groceries, I'm wearing a mask and I'm keeping distance and I'm washing up after I get done. If everybody did that for a couple of weeks, this thing goes away. Yeah, that's the craziest part about this whole thing. And you know, what can you say? I mean, Lil Bow Wow just had a surprise concert uh, uh, somewhere in the States and no masks, no masks, packed club, uh, playing his old hits from 20 years ago and no masks. Um, I don't know who Little Bow Wow is. <laughs> <laughs> He's just a rapper, a washed okay. up rapper. But um, oh, all right. <laughs> uh, so speaking of lockdowns and all that, uh, there's, you know, anti-lockdown movement. There's protests. We have all this stuff. Um, I found a subreddit the other day. They have 30,000 members. Uh, this lockdown skeptic subreddit, um, you know, and they post different misinformation and things they believe. And uh, what what can be said about because because it is true that uh, with lockdowns, you have a lot of mental health issues. You know, we have suicides, uh, overdoses have, have risen, um, things like that. What are the real dangers of lockdowns and, and what is the risk uh, weighing the risks uh, between the pandemic and the lockdown? Sure. All the things you mentioned and then some, um, the, um, the, the destruction of mom and pop businesses, you know, small business that they operate month to month as it is. And they, and, and it goes away. The people in the restaurant and hotel industries, uh, my heart goes out to all of them. I mean, they're, they're, they're just getting by as it is. No one's getting rich in those businesses. And then to lose your job, um, you know, uh, you know, the, the, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's absolutely horrible, but here's the deal lockdowns are supposed to be temporary. A lockdown is a mandated way of saying, everybody, we're taking the time and we're going to take a little break here. You get in and don't spread this stuff. The problem is they don't, we don't follow it properly. That's we don't like follow just it. saying so it's it's never that's the thing is that people keep talking about fascism and lockdowns and my rights and but there's never actually been a real lockdown in north america they, they no. call these things a lockdown but people don't no rules really change like we can get into the details but everybody's got a different t form of their own lockdown but like you just said yeah if we all followed it it would have only been two or three weeks but uh yeah well there are people who are purposely defiant who say if you tell me to lock down, I'm going to go out and I'm going to have a party at my place. Yes. And I'm going to, and, and we've seen that, you know, we, we, we've seen um, college students who, you know, don't really take it seriously because it doesn't affect them. You know, we've seen these super spreader events. We've seen political events that have been massive amounts of people who are brought to 
brought together. Um, that's the problem is that we haven't had leadership, which has said, we're all on the same team here. We need to get on the other side of this. Here's how we're going to do it. And we need your help to do it. And if we want company, we, we want our small businesses to thrive. We want our communities to come back. We want to go back to church. We want to go um, hang out with friends. We want to go to a football game. We want to, you know, hang out on Saturday night at a bar. We want to go see live music. If we want that, we're going to take a sacrifice for these next three weeks. And during that time, we're going to test each other. We're going to go through testing. We're going to isolate. And we are going to compensate individuals as well as businesses to make sure that they're there on the other side of this short, temporary, three-week lockdown. Right. That would have done it. It would have done it. We, and Peter Hotez and other experts have said that yeah. we had to have a, a strict compliance for a short time. And now we're in this long bleed out where we're watching businesses languish, small businesses closing every day, and the disease keeps getting worse. We could have stopped it back in March. And and it's a leadership question. 100%. Um, you know, just more on the misinfo and disinfo out there. I, I came across... Um, I won't even say the guy's Twitter handle because I don't want to give him too much uh, attention. But this one gentleman is a, a naturopath, uh, and he has he's followed by Soledad O'Brien, and actually Barack Obama's Twitter account follows this guy. And uh, some of the tweets, I'll, I'll list a few of them that he said here. You know, the virus doesn't scare me; the reaction does. We're setting the stage for martial law and a new world order under the pretense of a public health security. You know, this thing about martial law. I have friends that are you know concerned about that kind of thing. And uh, we can talk about uh, even the military getting involved in the vac vaccinations. I don't know the pros and cons there, but as far as martial law, this only happens in times of war, assassinations. You know, in Canada, we had Trudeau's father, the October crisis in Quebec, there was a MP that was murdered um, in the 70s uh, and a British diplomat was kidnapped. Um, th they had martial law there. Um, it's, it's used in very rare cases when they, you know, and most of the cases in the States, you look at they're from 150 years ago, stuff like that. Like, it's such a rare thing. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that even, but like martial law, like, why are we afraid of that in this, in this context? Because again, not to be panicky or fearful, but the virus is the most concerning thing. Like I wouldn't be that concerned with martial law. I mean, well, but this is the problem is that when you start throwing around threats of martial law or even notions of martial law, you're relying on taking these drastic centralized government methods to make people do the right thing. And that can't be where we go. The way that you, and I've worked in leadership for a long time. I mean, I, I look like I rolled off a turnip truck tonight. You know, I mean, I, I was working out on the farm with my wife. Um uh, the way that we solve problems from a point of leadership is by building coalitions, by building bridges, by, by connecting with the people who, uh, who are skeptical, and by building trust. And when we have trust, we can say, you know, we're a community, we're all on the same page, we all want the same thing. We want a healthy country, we want our, our grandmothers and grandparents, to, we want our war heroes to survive, we want our economy back, we want um, our schools to be open and our kids to be back in school. We all want the same thing. How do we get there? The way to do it is this three-step program. Stay at home for a while. If you go out, pretend that you are an infectious, communicable mess and protect everybody else with masking and distance and minimize your time. Go to Walmart at midnight, you know, find the 24 hour place and go there, you know, minimize your 
um, your potential to hurt somebody else. That, that's the way out. It's I almost think it should, it should be like part of me. I always thought, you know, it's kind of, it's like a game. It's, uh, you know, I'm a big video game uh, enthusiast. It's like a game. It's like, try to not give the virus to somebody like, <laughs> it's, it's it's kind of fun and it, you know you can use your survival skills like this is the thing we kind of joke always joke about what if zombies attack well what would you do well this is it like let's try and use our ingenuity and not spread this thing let's let's attack this virus you know like as as a team essentially um maybe i'm just super optimistic or positive there um, <laughs> well the history well, the history books will show um what you're talking about because we will be able to track specific infections where they started where they went um by looking at sequence data and just like these new variants that have come out um those are being discovered because they're looking for them and as we progress forward we'll be able to see where the super spreader events were and where um where different things have there's tons of samples that are sitting in freezers that have never been processed or were processed um, to give a, a positive negative but were never looked at for sequence variation and the data will tell a story and yeah. so you know I, I i agree with you i think we're going to see some very interesting things come out of this sure so uh, i hope you have just a few more minutes and a couple more things uh so another thing that that uh, account had tweeted was where there's a risk there must be a choice and now this is obviously in reference to vaccination or mandatory vaccinations uh how do you think about or where do you fall on the concept of mandatory vaccination or paid vax paid incentives by company private companies for their employees to get vaccinated um you know 60 percent of canadians i believe so uh want mandatory vaccinations i think that's the number i'm not sure what it might be in the states um how do you think about that I think it has a bad feel to it from a communication standpoint that, you know, you are going to get this or else we're going to put you in jail <laughs> where you'll get the disease. The governments don't want to do that. Right. They, no, no, I don't, no, no, like no. People will say, oh, don't worry. You know, Trudeau is going to mandatory that. And it's like, I don't think that's even the mandate of the government. I don't think I think they know, hey, we're not going to do this mandatory, guys, because that's going to be a, a disaster. We're just not oh. going to do that. We're going to give the information and keep people as educated as possible, make it easy to do and all, all that sort of thing. But, well, it doesn't even, you know, and education is great and I'm all for that and I do that, but there's a, there's an element of trust that doesn't come from more information. There's an element of trust that when you have your trusted source of information, come out and say, don't worry about it is where we turn the corner. And so this is a case where, you know, where, where president Trump needs to come out and say, look, I'm sorry. I was wrong about this. I was wrong to downplay it. Listen to Dr. Fauci. Go get your vaccination. It's safe. Well, the weird and thing is he has said recently, too, that, like, you know, it's a great vaccine. We're loving the vaccine. I created the <laughs> Like, it's all about it's like it's his vaccine. Like, everything's his thing. Yeah, but, all right. But at least I was proud of him. At least he's saying that. Um, mm -hmm. But you're right. It doesn't. He, he got he had that. Um, was it a cardiologist that then became. Oh yeah, the, no, the he, was a, he was a radiologist. Radiologist, who, that's what it was. Who, and and who put out copious disinformation? Just about ridiculous this. stuff. But yeah, and the 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 thing that you need to be doing as a public official and you know, a politician is identifying the scientists who know what they're talking about and and help them achieve trust. The problem is is that politics is is is, is trying to get votes by dividing us, and if we start to coalesce truth or, or trust around one individual. It, it erodes that, you know, imagine if we had coalitions around climate or coalitions around coronavirus, you know, it's, it's where politics goes wrong and real leadership has to transcend the politics and say, I don't care if you don't vote 
vote for me again, or I'm going against a bias you have. Here's the information that I've looked at that I trust, and I really want you to trust it too. You don't have to talk about the spike protein. You don't have to talk about prolines holding it in its uh, prefusion conformation. You don't have to talk about, you know, beta, uh, B cells and killer T cells. You just have to earn the, you just have to tell people, this is what I know and why it's important for you to get taken care of. It's important to me, should be important to you. That's the message. Yeah. And, you know, we've learned this from 20 years in science communication failures. I think one one thing I uh, that was brought up to me by someone on another podcast too was um, that you know influencers, uh, social media influencers, or just anybody really that has a following, whether it is in politics or business or whatever the thing might be, to show them you know sharing videos of people getting the vaccines, sharing photos, and and making it more normalized and talking about openly and that that sort of thing. I think speaks to what you're just saying, the trust yeah. factor. You know, if these cool people whether it's an artist a musician or something they keep showing hey i'm getting the vaccine i think that's like the whole i will vote thing people change their profile picture about you know getting people to vote i think it that kind of makes sense yeah getting getting a vaccine is cool right right and you know cool. hey mike pence did it thank goodness i'm glad he went and did it there you you know, kamala harris and joe biden made a very public thing of them getting it you know here right now you're starting to appeal to a significant part of the population you get the old folks on by I don't know who's old, who's really cool. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know. Uh, Bob Barker. Yeah, Bob Barker. Betty White. Uh, Betty White Betty just White. turned Betty 99, White. I think. Oh, good for her. You know, Betty White, she should go get a vaccine. Exactly. Um, you know, you know the, but this is the point. You have to have people in your trusted community, whatever that is, right? Um, sports folks exactly. athletes yeah, yeah you you if trusted communities are out getting this done then it's a it's a no-brainer for people who follow them you know go in and give a kardashian one in each arm you know whatever <laughs> you know yeah. one in one in every botox hall you know there but there's a, there are so many things that that um what it's what compliance is about is identifying those trusted communities and having individuals in those trusted communities become the teachers and become the examples. And, you know, that that's what I try to be with scientific communities. Um, the folks who listen to my podcast, I got a pretty good audience. I, I want them not to be can, I, I don't think I have to convince them to be uh, vaccinated, but I do have to um, hold their hand in helping them convince their uncle and their sister, their kids, this is important for you. Right. And when your number comes up, go get it. True. And, and I haven't convinced my dad. So, you know, there you go. I mean, well, it's a tough nut to crack. Hopefully soon enough. Um, well, as we get closer to wrapping up here, one thing that I'm, it's a great segue here. Cause I mentioned to you um, before we started the podcast, this thing about Bill Gates being uh, the, the, largest owner of farmland in America, I guess now. And uh, also this idea of him, you know, like Mr. Burns trying to block out the sun. And I'm, I'm this one quote about uh, from another Twitter account uh, about viruses uh, alludes to that a little bit. Viruses are everywhere. They're literally falling from the sky at all times, carried across oceans. The idea that humans can stop them spreading is as deranged as Bill Gates idea of stopping the sun's rays. Personal immunity stops a virus becoming a disease. Nothing else. What do you have to say to that? Well, there's a little bit to unpack there. I, the you know viruses are viruses. They're just this little cluster of chemistry that is completely inanimate. It can't replicate on its own. It has no metabolism. It can't do anything unless it hijacks you. Right. And so the 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 first thing is is that viruses you know we're being infected by new viruses all the time. They just don't 
change anything. They just don't, they're just not pathogenic. Um, the, you know, we're, we're, we're the, the neat thing about uh, the SARS-CoV-2 COVID-19 thing is look at all the other respiratory diseases that have gone down to zero. Um, influenza, respiratory syntitial virus, they've gone down really far because we haven't been out spreading them. Well, that's an important um, point just to, to emphasize what you just said there, because a lot of people say, hey, there's no flu. And somehow to them, that means that COVID is a hoax. Like I, and I don't get that. And I, I tell them like, it's the flu shot. It's the distancing. It's the masks. It's the it's the closures. It's the yeah. everything. Right? It's it's the you know you look at. I used to look at folks in Asian cultures who would wear a mask just out you know around. If you weren't feeling well, that's what you did to protect everybody else. Yeah. And I used to look at it and go, that's kind of crazy. And actually, one time I was on a Southwest flight, and I put a mask on and sat in the center row because I wanted to row all to myself. <laughs> no one sat by me. Yeah, no um, good point. But but this was back before you know anything and i always wondered about that as a cultural issue but i'll tell you what from now on if i'm ever even feeling a little bit of a cough or cold i will never leave the house without a mask and i, I think it's a cool i mean people are upset with masks and the ones who i know who are i just tell them look you probably got a really uncomfortable mask you didn't spend a lot of money on it's one of those things invest a few extra dollars get a nice comfortable one uh you know get a few of them get some cool designs on them you know this was actually a fashion statement in the last five years yeah. i'd say in in the streetwear and the hip-hop world you'd see people with masks on and they had designs on them in their album cover whatever on it and it was like okay but why like it's cool but why are you wearing it now you have a reason to wear it, it it's a perfect match like and I, I know as a DJ, I know artists and stuff that are making their own masks now with their own artwork on it. You know, it's a great way to self-promote. It's There's so many positives to masks, I think. Um, you know, well, all that's good. But, you know, I, I have a very strong streak of, um, you know, I am my brother's keeper. And I really do believe that. And I think that, you know, for me, it, I would be horrified to know that I hurt somebody. Yeah. Um, because I was in, and I, I sat across from an attorney a few months ago who, um, was not wearing a mask who tested positive and I self quarantined for, for self isolated for 14 days. I came, I got tested. I came out negative, no problem, but it was diff, different people are wired in different ways. Yeah. For me, it is very much a question of how do I protect others? Other people say, how do others protect me and let me do whatever I want? And in America in 2021, um, that is something that we have to contend with. There's a certain kind of weird, prolific narcissism that we just are that we're just going to have to to wrestle with. But how do we make the idea of? Um, and, and I think the trick is the most patriotic thing to do, the best thing to do for our economies, the best thing to do for each other, is to get back to normal. And the fastest way to do that is to cover up isolate and let's get on the other side of this thing yeah one short point on that too the the concept that it, let's just do no measures no lockdown whatever all that sort of approach would would also lead to the economy crumbling correct like there's no way we get out of this without severe economic damage like people say the lockdowns are causing the yes of course but imagine if everybody just got it, it the economy would not do well either correct well, look at what the tax is going to be on the healthcare system. Yeah. Uh, the cost of this thing, either to Medicare, Medicaid, or to private insurance, is going to be astronomical. 
And when you look at people say, oh, the economy is soaring. Well, you know, you look at Dow Jones, it's 30 different companies that are already doing pretty well or they wouldn't be in the index. Um, it, the, the way you measure the, the health of an economy is by the unemployment in your town, by the people who are suffering, the people who are going to standing in line for a basket of vegetables um, at a food bank. The, um, those lines have never been longer. Um, the number of mom and pop st stores are closing down as Amazon, UPS, and FedEx are going great. Um, how do we really measure what the damage is? And, you know, to me, I am much more comfortable with um, seeing my community be healthy. That starts with me making decisions about how I'm going to behave in that community. And part of that is to pretend that I am fully infectious and uh, in a risk to everybody else. If we all did that, we'd be okay. Right. Now, that was a very long segue for me to ask my question about Bill Gates owning the most, <laughs> the most popular right. in America. But just to say my initial thought of, of, you know, I see I know that these headlines come out and I see people retweet it with just an emoji of just a scared face or an angry face. or And it's like, OK, this guy is one of the richest guys on the planet. Why wouldn't he own a bunch of farmland? Like, you you got to think, like, if if you were like he probably has some sustainable agriculture reason for it. You know, uh, I'm sure there's this great him and Melinda are thing they're doing with it. Uh, I know, you know, he's got all these different initiatives. So immediately I just go to, well, it's gotta be some great positive thing he's doing, but for, for people who are like afraid of Bill Gates for some reason, um, <laughs> you know, how, I, like, how do you make sense? Cause you're, you're obviously knowledgeable about agriculture and that sort of thing. So uh, I don't know if you got a chance to read up on it, but why do you think he would have, bought so much uh, farmland, for example. Well, my guess is that we're, once we're all microchipped from his vaccines, we're, he's going to need some zombie farm workers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I think I think what it is, is that Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, all these folks who are deep pocket investors, you know, they're trying to diversify their uh, portfolios and their exposure. And one of the things that, you know, I know as someone who works in agriculture is that land that's arable is, is limited. There's only so much of it and it's going away. Here in the state of Florida, we have fantastic land for off-season production. California is a desert, but they irrigate it to be able to farm it. Um, areas throughout the world, ag land is very limited and we have to feed ourselves and billions of more people coming from that limited resource. Yet, we're turning it into shopping malls, housing developments. We're destroying it environmentally. We're doing all kinds. We got climate change on top of that, which is changing in the plants that you can grow anywhere. Canada has seen three more growing weeks since 1950 than they used to have. Um, all kinds of crop changes there. Much more horticultural crops moving away from winter wheat and other stuff. You know, corn and soybeans that used to be in Iowa and Minnesota now in Canada. So the bottom line is agricultural land is a shrewd investment. And if you have, um, uh, it, it's, it, it is a resource. It, it's like if someone told you we're going to take gold, all the rest of it, which we can fit in this box, and uh, we're going to um, basically throw away a bunch of, we're going to shoot it in the space. It is a dwindling resource that is valuable. Right. And I'll tell you what, if I had more money, I'd invest in more. 100%, but even not, and that's a great way of looking at it, the investment standpoint. I mean, Ted Turner, right, CNN, he's got, he's got a lot of land. Uh, there's different guys that own a lot of land. Um, but if anyone, I'd rather have Bill Gates own it because I, I know the great work that his foundation does and the different initiatives that he has going. And uh, 
you know, he's concerned about these ma- major problems that we're facing. So I guess in the end, you can't conv- again, you can't convince anybody if they're afraid of Bill Gates, they're afraid of Bill Gates. But at the end of the day, you know, yeah, he's yeah. he doesn't have the certain PhDs that people want him to have, but he's very smart. He reads a lot and he's got money so he can assemble these different advisors that, that help yeah. him to solve these problems. So yeah, yeah, he's surrounded by eggheads and he's got people who are advising him, especially on this land stuff. Um, When you do a deep dive, um, there's a good article in uh, Successful Farming about it. Uh, This is part of a strategy to uh, obtain some of the best farming land because it's still profitable and people are going to continue to eat and people will continue to need food. And worldwide, you know, Bill, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has done some really great work. They have contributed mountains of money. And people who are critical of him kind of get my goat a little bit because I, I would like more Bill Gates's and more same, investment. Same. Yeah. And there's there's some people who I know who have um, personally experienced uh, interaction with the Gates Foundation and their funding strategies in developing countries who say it's horrible what you have to deal with. And I understand that, you know, there's, there's, but at the end of the day, here's a guy with a checkbook who's writing checks to finance things that we all care about. Yeah. I would like to see more of that. And 100%. so if he's, if he's buying farmland, awesome. I wish I could, you know, we, we, we just bought, <laughs> yeah. well, we just bought another uh, 13 acres and we're dancing in the aisles about it because we got more space to do what we do. Um, mostly what my wife does and not what I do. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a science professor. She does all the work, <laughs> but, but having more agricultural space to produce more food for our community is a big deal. And, uh, and so, you know, hats off to Bill Gates, buy more, and, um, you know, someday he'll sell it to somebody else. And for people who don't like factory farming and, and all that type of thing or meat eating also, I know he has a big stake yeah. in one of those um, companies. A big steak. Well, a big steak. <laughs> yeah. Pun intended. Uh, <laughs> and one of those companies that, uh, yeah, creates meat out of um, plant yeah. material, whatever it is. Yeah. He's, he's um, a big, he's a big investor in beyond uh, um, in impossible foods. Impossible foods. That's and the so one, he's you know. a, he's a big investor in possible foods. And this could be a play in that direction, right? Yeah. That when he says, and he is a, you know, he's, says uh, animal agriculture can contributes x amount to climate Uh, if we can create meat substitutes that satisfy the consumer but do it with plant-based ingredients that's great and a lot of animal ag folks really freak out when you say that and i I think you know they they get angry at me when i say it but i kind of think the writing's on the wall that we're going to see a a slow gravitation towards that um, because it is instead of feeding 35 pounds to create a pound of beef uh, you can feed 35 pounds of feed to people <laughs> to create yeah. to create oh, fatter humans right no they're good but there's more people coming and and i think you know i think it's wise for us to examine all of our options and and the market will dictate how it flows 100 percent uh so in closing um let's can i f- jump right back to covid again any predictions personally on your on your point of view as far as Back to normalcy, the timelines, you know, Fauci, I think, has recently said uh, probably North America, we may see back something normalcy in, you know, fall or winter of this year. Uh, Do you think that that seems reasonable? Do you think people will be wearing masks for two, three, 10, 20 years? You hear all kinds of different predictions. 
Yeah, this is a tricky one because, you know, the and, and I asked the same question to a vir virologist. I asked the same question to uh, Dr. Ilaria Kapua back in February on my podcast last year. I said, where's this going? And she said, the virus is just a virus. The virus only spreads if humans let it. And so the question now is, can the incoming administration in the U.S. create a cultural shift that gets everybody on board, including people who don't like him, to say, we are going to take part in stopping this now? And I think he is, just from the little hints you get, I think they are in tune with the strategy that you have to somehow get everybody on board. And I think that if they can do that successfully in the first, you know, 100 days, as they say, I would say in, in the February, we'll know, you'll see the numbers start to decline. And if we can start to understand that this is not a question of, you know, my rights, my individual rights, your individual rights, my right to go to a restaurant, whatever, where this becomes our nation is falling behind because everybody else is beyond this and we are still trying to figure it out. This is a question of, of national interest, national security, and national prosperity for us all to say, we're going to step back, we're going to take a deep breath, we're going to follow CDC guidance, we're not going to listen to politicians, we're going to listen to CDC guidance, and we're going to do what they say. And with that, we'll go forward and we'll solve this problem. And uh, even now that we see China with their new cases, that do you, do you anticipate uh, or do experts anticipate that this may come around again every winter or that's, or will we just, if it does, we'll have the vaccinations uh, in place for that? Well, that remains to be seen, right? And I, but I do see, you know, you see cases, um, Australia is a great example where you do find isolated pockets where they do shut down again because they've solved this. They've got this out. They had a good New Year's Eve party. They had a great Christmas. You know, their whole thing is keeping this, this thing suppressed that when they detect it, they shut it down hard. And I think that kind of local detection, which is going to massive testing. Um, and when you detect it locally, you shut it down locally. And this is the way you solve the problem. This is what we should have done back in March. You know, a much more agile um, a detection plan, um, a, a testing plan. And now that we have inoculation and, and vaccination, vaccination, dovetailing with uh, testing. And that's how we get our way out of this. Awesome. Well, Dr. Fulta, thanks again. Thanks for being a three-time guest. Um, the podcast you host is called the Talking Biotech Podcast, and that's available on every platform you can find it on. Um, any closing thoughts? Um, thanks again for your time. It was awesome. No, I, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I, this is kind of a different one than we normally do, um, but it has so many of the same threads, right? We always talked about genetic engineering and crops and how we get more feed and more food in the people. This is all about how we take care of each other and we take care of each other by following the science. And, you know, it's, 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 it's not a political issue. And the minute we can divorce ourselves from that in the, in the States as well as Canada and realize that we are our brother's keepers, we need to take care of each other, you know, that my actions tomorrow may affect your health in a few months. And, you know, I'm the key to, to stopping that. And if we all go. took ownership of that, we could maybe stop this and move on. Help each other, save each other, keep each other safe and trust the science, trust the experts. And don't listen to all the chatter, all the all the daily politics. It's all nonsense. You got it. Thanks again. And uh, <laughs> hopefully maybe one day you'll be a four-time guest. Who knows? Let's hope so. I always appreciate talking to you. I appreciate it a lot. 
Great. All right. Take care. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Bye.